Welcome to the Electric Monks Podcast. Episode 29, Confessions of a Violent Young Boyish Man. Hello and welcome back after a long absence to the Electric Monks Podcast. Today we'll be doing episode 8 of season 2 of uh, Detroit uh, State Agency, which is Little Guy Black Hair. I'm Ed, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, which are Nemo. Good morning from Down Under. And Jesse. Hello from California. Yes, so, uh, this episode of Little Guy Black Hair is directed by Wayne Yip, who I believe also did the previous episode, which directed the previous episode, which was This Is Not Miami, which we talked about last time. And was written by Russell Friend and Garrett Lerner, who also wrote the second episode of this uh, second series, uh, which was called... Fans of Wet Circles. That's it, Wet Circles. And uh, I I think this is probably of those two that they wrote, the stronger one, in my opinion. Uh, Really? uh, <laughs> I, I hear skepticism in your. This is going to be great. This is good. Yeah, I'm going in on this episode. This is uh, this is, in my opinion, the worst written episode in the entire series. Uh, okay, I I think there might be some some redeeming factors. I can sort of imagine what you're going to say, but um, there are good character moments. There are good <laughs> there are good moments that the actors do a great job with in terms of just storytelling and writing. This episode is really bad. Is my point. Uh, just to give everyone the spoilers early, uh, but... <laughs> so they don't get gutted when you yeah. tear into it out of nowhere later on. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm, I might not reveal what I think of it, just so that there's some kind of suspense in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is a great start, but now we have people criticizing the show, <laughs> which, yeah. is, which is good because it's difference of opinion. It's, it's why we're here. Exactly. So, uh, ISIS is synopsis, but very quickly, uh, Dead Genesis Season 2 is available on Blu-ray and DVD for Region 1, I believe. It is available on streaming services, perhaps more easily on Netflix in Europe and Hulu in the United States. And so at some point, who knows, it may come to ABC iView in Australia. Yeah, it was uh, Season 1 was on iView and... I can't remember if season two was or not, but it's on uh, Netflix in Australia. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, so I forgot about it that. is available Net- if you want it. Uh, Netflix pretty much everywhere apart from the US. So yeah. uh, let's dive into the synopsis for Little Guy, Black Hair. In the aftermath of Dirk and Todd's escape to Wendemore, Priest has secured the Cardenas home and even captured the purple pe- people eater from pocket dimension within the house. Ken orders Priest to lock down the entire county and warns that they are reaching an inflection point from which things will converge. Freakin' Lorraine's completely baffled and frustrated. Ken introduces Freakin' to Project Lamia, aka Mona Wilder. Ken figures out from Blackwing's security footage that Freakin's panic Pete toy is actually Mona. After slipping away from the Cardenas home, Farrow goes to the police station where she finds a traumatized Tina. Farrow explains that Dirk and Todd have disappeared and that their priority is to apprehend and arrest Susie Borton. Tina reluctantly agrees to help, but when they arrive, all they find is Bob watching TV in a trance. The mage shows, the mage shows up as a pre-recorded spell on the TV to explain that Susie has left for Wendemore and orders Bob to kill them. Farrow is able to break the spell by shooting the TV with Bob's shotgun, which calms him down. 
Meanwhile, in Wendemore, Dirk is pursued by the Beast, but is able to escape by jumping into the back of a horse-drawn carriage, which allows him to sneak into the Dangdemore village, where Todd and Amanda have been captured. Amanda attempts to explain to Frigga and Wygar that Farson was kidnapped by the Kellum Knights, not the Trosts, but Frigga does not believe her and sentences them to death. Is it Freya? Frigga? I, I think it's Freya. I think, I think Wygar calls her Freya. Freya? Okay. Is that okay? The spelling on it. It it doesn't matter. People know who you're talking about. The the, the, the matriarch, yeah. The beast catches up to Dirk as he leaves the village only to run into the rowdy three. Dirk is able to convince them and the beast to go along with his plan to save the Bratzman siblings. After a big, ridiculous fight scene, everyone is able to escape and the team even kidnaps Silas. Dirk then explains to everyone how he solved the case before a completely demented Susie emerges in front of them. With some encouragement from Tina, Bob is able to tell her and Farrah that Hobbs is in the local quarry. When Farrah and Tina arrive, though, the mage is almost instantly able to use his magic wand to knock them out, leaving them at his mercy. End of episode. So, very dun, quickly. Done, done, done. Yeah, it does end <laughs> on two cliffhangers as well. Let's see if we can bring that out. So, the cast. Samuel Barnett is Dirk Gently, Elijah Wood is Top Brotsman, Hannah Marks is Amanda Brotsman, Jada Shetts, Farrah Black, Umpho Choir is Ken Adams, Michael Eckerman is Martin, Dustin Milligan is Sergeant Hugo Freakin, Osric Chow is Vogel, Amanda Walsh is Susie Borden, Izzy Steele is Tina Tevantino, Karen Canoval is Freya Dengdemore, Viva Leacock is Grips, Zach Santiago is Cross, Lee Majdub is Silas Dengdemore, Alex Panuvik is Weiger Oak, Dylan Shombing as The Boy, Alan Tudyk as Mr. Priest, John Hanna as the mage, Emily Tennant as the beast, Francois Robertson as Marina Cardenas, Sergio Asuna as Hector Cardenas, Hunter Dillian as young Arnold, John Stewart as Bob Borton, and Tariq Leslie as executioner. Should we get into general thoughts or should we just dive right into um, the beginning of this episode, Jesse? I think I think I got my point across initially. I think we can dive in, but like the, it starts off with a strong flashback, right? It starts off yeah, with the, like, by the way, let's just explain to everyone exactly what happens, what what happens, uh, in case you haven't put it together yet. Yeah. So one thing I really like is how the, we see the argument between Hector and Marina, uh, which obviously we we heard earlier was about like you know selling the farm, basically that um, Hector didn't want to, but uh, Marina wanted to. Uh, and was tempted by the money and came back with a new car. And I like also that we we almost sort of hear, we don't just see it from uh, the boy's point of view. We also hear it because he's sort of, the audio is kind of muffled. They almost, it's not mm. really that important what the argument is about. It's just the fact that this is the day everything falls apart. And uh, basically his his mum kills her his dad. And um, then drives away and also and and it's uh, you also see i think they do a good job of showing exactly sort of how difficult this is for arnold as well because we see young arnold uh sort of and they, they, i think for a kid actually does a pretty good job of showing just like how horrified he is of the fact that both of the parents are gone he's gonna have to deal with and sort of essentially betray uh his younger brother or his adopted younger brother so there's a lot of really cool uh, interesting kind of drama going on in that flashback. There's so many things to unpack with this flashback. Uh, the, the biggest, the biggest two for me, and maybe this is just me being like, you know, a wet blanket on the situation. But what is the writer's understanding of like property law, where a wife could reasonably sell her husband's farm, or like, what exactly is the jo- joint ownership going on there? Like the the underlying 
a disagreement that like is is between the, the the two parents in this situation like doesn't feel like it has any standing in like a legal reality and maybe that's just like maybe i'm just wrong maybe there's like some some situation where that could work but um i don't know that to me that was like a fir the first thing where it's just like wait is, that's not how that would work um and then the other thing was the killing with the scissors just feels weird like it doesn't like like the nature of that of that fight where he's like he's like give me that and they, they have this sort of weird slow motion action sequence and then suddenly she has scissors and is holding them up and then like she kind of pokes him in the forehead with them i'm willing to, to go with it that like sure getting poked really hard in the forehead with scissors i mean that's you would need an insanely sharp pair of scissors and a lot of force to pierce your skull in the way that that those are trying to do um but like i don't know it's just it it feels it, it has worked so far up to this point, but then actually watching it played out just feels so weird and not satisfying and completely unbelievable. When like, this isn't supposed to be the supernatural bit. This is supposed to be the serious grounded, like like dirty reality of like, oh man, this poor kid having to deal with her, his mom killing his dad with a pair of scissors. I just, I don't know. It just, it's, it's weird. And this isn't even like the part that I think is bad writing. I, I just think that like the direction on this, Scene is yeah, very so I was, was going to say that, that what what you're saying here is a complaint of the directing, not a complaint of the writing. Yeah, uh, no, this I, is a director. I interpret this is not yeah. a writing complaint. Yeah, I don't know. You guys, you guys don't seem to have minded this at all, or at least it's it's like you can just blink and be like, okay, well, it's not important to like the overall thing. But it, it just it did it didn't bother me at an instinctual level to watch it. Like I now that you pointed out it's I, I look at it back and i'm like yeah I, I see what you mean like i've i've literally got it uh playing muted in the background uh yeah it so escalates I'm watching in the scene here. Weird way, yeah it's uh, uh sorry to interrupt nima but for me they were going to fall out over something sooner or later and to me it feels like this is a this isn't just about selling the land it's not just a land dispute i feel like there's a lot of underlying stress of having to look after this supernatural child that has made their life basically insanely complicated and almost like a living hell in some respects and i think that's implied but it's not covered very well yeah but like the whole show is predicated on this this child's traumas are reflected in this weird fucked up world like that's that's what the show is doing right that's why everything is a scissor weapon that's why kellen is the bad guy Literally, like, the essence of Wendemore is, like, the warped reality of this ch kid's childhood traumas. And so they need to add up. Like, they need to be linked in a way. And it 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 just doesn't, like, the, like the traumas don't, to me, really work. Especially since, like, the scissors are central to the murder. But, like, are, are the, scissors, the scissors were in the mural, too, right? Doesn't that seem weird? Like, like the, the they're trying to make the scissors a central point of the plot uh, because they're the murder weapon. Because she, the mom, killed it with the scissors. It's supposed to be this big aha moment. But like, the scissors were in the mural before they were used as a murder weapon. Yeah, I'd have to I, go I, back I, and view the mural. Actually, I, offhand, I don't remember. I guess so. I, I I never viewed it as like a smoking gun personally. I think when Dirk finds it like in the house within the house a few episodes ago, it is almost sort of treated like that. But um, well, but, but again, we even commented at the time that that was a bit weird because Dirk says, "I found the murder weapon," and they say, "Oh well, it sort of 
fits with the the thing on Hector's skull, but then it's almost sort of immediately dropped. It's not seen like as a big breakthrough that proves anything particularly. Well, it's not meant to prove anything in the in the story, but it's meant to link Wendemore and explain like how this kid's childhood trauma has shaped this mystical world that he's made. Yeah, I guess the problem is that you can tell they've written Wendemore first, and then they've sort of written the reason for Wendemore after is the, the sense that I kind of get from this. And so you can easily imagine, oh, where do the scissors come from? This, we want these scissor swords, how do we write the scissor swords in? And so, oh, we make them the murder, or we make them the murder weapon? And then they've not really thought about maybe the repercussions. The causality isn't there. Yeah. But yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in terms of the legal point of view, I, I didn't actually get the impression that she'd sold the house necessarily. Uh, I figured, like, it, it did occur to me that... Well, she uh, bought the car. Yeah, she bought but the, the, yeah, the, she, she yeah. bought the car and, and put the property as collateral you know, to finance it. And as a presumably in the time era, maybe. Uh, and, and that's actually a, arguably a, a bigger problem from a legal perspective is putting the property collateral to buy a vehicle as a big financial purchase. Um, I don't have a problem with by today's legal status, but I, I didn't uh, even think it was middle America in the 50s or 60s, uh, when would that have been? I can't remember when that flashback is set. I thought I thought the car was a gift from the Kellum Corporation in 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 exchange for agreeing that she would sell the land to them. Like that's that's how I remember the 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 episode explaining it is that they had gifted her the car because she had went to visit them and had agreed to give them the farm. It wasn't a collateral thing. They weren't like they're not. It was weird because Arnold is quite kind of vague. He just sort of because he was a kid at the time as well when he explains yeah. it. So he just sort of says, "Oh well, they had an argument about um, you know selling, and then right, right, right. she came back with the car." So yeah, yeah. I don't want to get too caught yeah. up in in that at this point. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of a yeah, minor yeah. thing in the scheme <laughs> yeah, of things, yeah, yeah. to be honest. But it's more of the catalyst for the event that follows. After the intro, I think we get a priest calling a freaking. Oh, no, or, or freaking calling priest, whichever you want to call it. But the but freaking is sort of getting a status report from priest on everything that has just happened. And priest has gone yeah. in. And like we said in the synopsis, he's caught the purple people leader. He uh, Farrah has sort of. There's a little interesting thing where uh, Ken gets involved, and I think one of the first things that Ken, well, <laughs> initially freaking doesn't understand a word that. Uh, priest is saying pretty much and then he says just, just put ken on the line and ken is there ready and waiting and one of the early things he asked, that ken asks is um what about farrah black interesting that he sort of singles out farrah quite specifically and it's, sort yeah, of, it's yeah. not a big thing but it sort of reminds me that in the first season there was that's the only time that ken had met farrah was when farrah beat the crap out of him during bart's attempt to kill dirk basically <sighs> Yeah, I don't see it that way. And I saw it in your notes as like, maybe this is that reason. And it's, and to me, it's like, no, this is the show really awkwardly and poorly explaining why Farrah got away off screen. Yeah, because um, there's no reason for Priest not to capture her, basically. There is no reason for Priest not to capture her. He's like, she got away. It's like, okay, because she needs to not be there because you need a B-plot with her on the other side of the town. Like, I'm, I, you couldn't have shown her getting away on camera. You couldn't have done, she just got away and now she's over there. Okay. Like, to me, that that's like the beginning of the of the lazy writing in this episode. Yeah, um, I I did. I, I do agree with that. Let's just go with that. I don't have words. <laughs> yeah. I guess they sort of hand wave it away and... 
but I, and I can sort of mentally, it's not like, it doesn't destroy the episode for me, but yeah, it does bug me that they never really satisfactorily explain it. And they, for me, they do a slightly better job of explaining how Tina gets out of the uh, jam in the hospital. But of well, course, yeah. the purpose, she got jammed in the door, basically. So, well, shame. you can like, it, like, Susie doesn't care about yeah. Tina. It's totally within the realm of possibility that Tina got away unharmed after that door, like, gets locked shut with the shade. And she mentions that some of the um, uh, government, Blackwing, comes in and she basically had to sort of avoid them and get right. go away back to the police station. Yeah. Well, so, uh, so Susie got. Uh, uh, blown away out the window by a priest, and then yeah, you know, was was all screw this. I'm going to Wendy more. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. At, at that point, she's not going to be worried about. Let's go back up into the hospital where priest is just to kill Tina. At that point, she's like, right, right, okay, right. The, this situation is. I've done what I needed to do. I'm leaving. Uh, Tina would yeah. not have even been in, as a thought. Would you mind letting me take the Blackwing segment? Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Do you just want to talk about uh, the priest side of things, or just also the um? We, I guess we can cover the whole kind of. Um, yeah, I was just going to go the whole Pre- thing, start to, start to start to finish. Okay, you go on. You, you take a piece. Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> things that are great about priests, like I love it. I love the shirt he's wearing. I love the uh, he captured the purple people eater off screen. I think that's funny. Well, I think that I don't think that would be a problem, Ken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like most of his conversation with Ken right up until Ken's like, we're coming to a convergence point. And he's like, oh, Ken, you have a dirty mind. And I'm uh, like, I've thought about that line over and over again. And, and like outside of it being a fun thing for you to hear priests say, I don't think it makes sense as a response to Ken saying we're having a convergence point. It's like, unless, unless the joke is that priest doesn't know what he means, I don't get it. Do you guys get it? Do you understand why why convergence point relates to having a dirty mind? Like no, and that's not actually my problem with the, with that line. <laughs> oh, okay. The, what I took from that was Ken sort of says, uh, I think the exact line is something like, "Um, we're uh, we're reaching uh, an inflection point." where things are going to converge and to my my mind sort of when he says oh that's dirty ken that made me think oh is that supposed to be some kind of legs coming together is 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 it just the um the priest is just sort of he really likes ken until he's trying to sort of build some kind of rapport and pass it off as something dirty when it actually isn't really intended that way i i don't know it's it's very odd (laughs) <laughs> a very odd line. It felt like they needed a sort of somewhat humorous way to end the scene, but they didn't know, they didn't really think about it making much logical sense, in my opinion. My issue with it wasn't uh, Priest's response, it was just the line itself, that it seems like it's a very big jump for Ken's awareness. It's like, he's saying there's an inflection point, there's a convergence coming. It's like, okay, there's been nothing talked about that so far. He's knows that how? It, just from reading the files, from analyzing that, we've not really been shown that enough to justify that level of a foreshadowing. Because that, that it, it feels like it's, you know, it's season three is going to be the big universe, you know, plot something. Uh, it just feels like it's a big foreshadowing in that direction, and it just feels too much of of that at this point. They did say a few episodes ago. Was it? Um episode five wasn't it shapes and colors where ken basically was looking at the monitor just after he'd been let out and he said something like 
everything seems to be converging around Berg's book because he noticed that all these different characters, Bart, does he know Bart's there? I'm not sure, but but he he definitely knew Dirk and the others were all there. So he would, I I, I don't think it's, I didn't find it that big a leap that he was sort of coming to that conclusion. But I think this idea that everything is going to converge there and not just, oh, Dirk and some of the others are there. I actually don't mind that part of the line. I don't mind Ken having that level of expertise because he lived through season one and he understands on like a sort of an intuitive level that like around these weird people, all of these unrelated sort of events all converge to form like a final sort of crescendo. And like, that's exactly what he lived through in season one. So like being able to read through a bunch of files and see the patterns, I'm okay with it. I'm totally fine with him reaching that level of expertise. What annoys me is is like the next three scenes. <laughs> and like that's not like uh like it, it so the next three scenes are basically Friedkin has a I'm uh, like stupid for the sake of the plot breakdown of not understanding you know any sort of basic sci-fi concepts. I swear to God, if Friedkin was running a vet, if he was like a, a, a tech at a veterinarian place, he would be like, what's rabies? How do you, like, how, who can function this way? How, why do I need to do anything with this dog? These dogs are so stupid. Like he, the level of his incompetence is just so frustrating to me. Doesn't he ask Ken earlier how the dog works? <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's always all over the map. And it's never consistent. And in this case, he goes through this, like, I'm frustrated and I'm taking off my clothes sequence while Ken is putting on the coat. And, like, to me, there's, like, a visual sort of, like, changing of places. Whereas, like, before Friedkin was, like, in the coat, he's in charge. Now Ken is wearing the coat. Like, they were clearly trying to do some sort of visual symbolism with that. But, like, Friedkin's freak out. You know, the actor's doing fine. He's doing as good as he can do with that script. I don't have anything against that actor, but A, having him be that stupid for the sake of like, I don't understand any of this. And then Ken giving him all of these really sad looks of like, gotta read the files, man. Don't tell me to read the files. And and the, the biggest sin about this and the next sequence is what the hell is Ken's motivation? Why, why does Ken care if Friedkin understands what's going on? Why does Ken care about being good at this job like like they, they, there's this people are just able to hand wave ken's motivations away because oh he's a computer guy computer guys just like being good at things for no particularly good reason i'm sure that's it he's just obsessive and trying to be good at this thing and it's like or you could treat him like a real character you could treat him like you tr- treated him in season one and give him like actual wants ken just basically for the sake of explaining Mona to the audience in case they didn't get it. Uh, and for the sake of explaining everything else to the audience in case they didn't get it, sits Friedkin down and explains everything to him. Not because like the characters would do that in that situation, but because the the writing requires that this information be passed to the audience because we're com- com- we're going to come back to it later. Yeah, I felt that was very heavy-handed exposition. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's extremely heavy-handed yeah. exposition. That's a great a great way of describing it. I agree that it's heavy-handed and sort of almost comes out of nowhere as a sort of uh, again as me trying to headcanon my way into this this whole thing, Ken motivation making sense. I sort of wondered maybe Ken 
is kind of testing a theory, but the way he talks about it, he's so confident that the doll is Mona. And you do a why is he sharing this with freaking others so the audience knows, figures that, gets that piece of the puzzle together of that Mona is still in Black Rang and, and is the doll. But like even figuring out that the doll is Mona, even going through like that off screen effort is still unmotivated. None of his, like nothing Ken has done in the last like two episodes in which they've shown him has had any motivation. And it's extremely frustrating to me. Like after he got out of the cab, he's just like, oh, here's some toys. Go play, like play with your toys, do the things. Cause I want you to do the things. But like, but what does the character Ken want? What does Ken want? Yeah, so there's two unmotivated things. There's him looking it up and figuring out who Mona is, and then also sharing it with Friedkin and going through all the footage as well. It's just, it, almost, it almost feels like it's all happening a bit too quickly that they've, in the space of maybe, I guess because Ken wasn't in the previous episode, uh, that, in, that since the last time we saw him, and now he's almost become a completely different character in a way. A sort of similar thing that happened to Friedkin earlier when he became more stupid for the sake of the plot. And we also get that in the car as well when he sort of introduces the concept of Mona being able to change what she looks like and stuff. And then Friedkin says, oh, is she like a shapeshifter? And then Ken's like, oh, good. Well, no. And then he says, oh, because she actually becomes these things. And the, the concept of Mona is fun. That's the only real thing about the scene that sort of almost is the saving grace of it, the sort of learning a bit more about how she works. But I think seeing that later on is a bit more, is a lot more fun rather than having it explained to us by Ken. Yeah. For that yeah. Reason. The, the concept of Mona is very fun. And the idea of them getting in the cab to make sure that they can talk without Mona hearing them is also fun. Like both of those ideas on a whiteboard as like, we should have a scene like this are great on paper. Um, the, the execution and, and the reasons we get there just, just are so lacking. When they're in the cab and Ken describes Mona as big, long technical uh, terminology and Friedkin guesses, is that a shapeshifter? That actually felt like a clumsy way of, of giving Friedkin at least one minor win that like, cause I, you know, I listened to what Ken said and I, I wouldn't have guessed shapeshifter that quickly from yeah. the context of me being me and knowing sci-fi tropes and not freaking level of dumb, but it, it felt like they wanted to give Friedkin at least one minor win. And it was a weird one to give him. It's like, yeah, well, don't, yeah. It definitely, <laughs> definitely had the exact same feeling when that happened. Should we do all the Farantina stuff? Sure. We'll get, we'll do their yeah. entire plot line, get it out of the way. Yeah, there's there's not much of these. Actually, this just just for the episode as a whole, um, we've had previous episodes which have been all in our world or all in Wendemore. This one felt like it was a little bit weird. There's like we've got so many plot threads that we're juggling now that we can't actually ignore any of them for an entire episode. But at the same time, like we don't get uh, Bud or Panto at all in this episode, despite getting mentioned. We get very little of uh, Priest and Mage and Susie in this episode. This kind of is part of it that we get a very small amount of Ken and Friedkin, but it's almost not enough to be satisfying for the episode, but they needed to do something because we haven't seen them uh, and there's there's plot relevance. It's To me, that's part of the clumsiness of the episode as a whole. Yeah. We're getting to the point at the end of the season. There's there's lots of plot threads that are being juggled and you know, they, they all, they're all getting towards being wrapped up, so they all need to be touched on a bit. 
Uh, so yeah. I, I get that. Just it feels clumsy about it. I actually think it also creates another problem in that tonally it's very odd because we have the the story in Windermore, which despite the stakes of um, Todd and Amanda, their lives being threatened and that stake is quite lighthearted in, as a whole because it mainly follows Dirk's perspective. Whereas uh, we get the Bergsberg scenes with Tina and Farah, which are actually, in my opinion, quite dark <laughs> in places. Yeah, yeah. Because we have T- we have this scene where Farrah goes into the police station and sees Tina. Tina starts shooting at her. Tina is completely freaked out and traumatized by what's just happened in the hospital, basically. And yeah. having seen a lot of people die, Tina is like, um, oh, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be doing any of this. We need to call the police. And then Farrah's like, Tina, we are the police. Which is, uh, yeah, I, 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 that's towards the end of this scene. But I, I actually really like Tina and the um, Izzy Steele's acting as Tina in this scene because she really gets across. Except we, we, there's enough in the script to better about sort of her relationship with Hobbs as well and how she still hasn't seen him and is worried about him. And I, I, there's a lot of stuff in this scene from her that I really like in terms of it just gets across that insecurity and how she's alone and vulnerable and how she really needs Farrah to sort of build her confidence back up. Yeah, I mean, I think that Tina's scenes are probably the strongest scenes in this episode. I don't like that line, we are the police. I think it's heavy-handed and kind of obvious. Um, but I like everything else about that scene. I like. I think he had to be heavy-handed, though, in a way, because Tina was becoming a bit delirious. That was my I, only yeah. sort of... That's I guess. Yeah, I was, I was okay with that. You don't have to agree. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. We find out why she's a cop in this scene, and it's amazing. Yeah. Um, I that's like one of the best moments in the show. Is she's like, I'm just here so I can hang out with my best friend all day. That makes sense for Tina, and I don't like that she blind fires at whoever comes in the door. I don't love that, but like, I I like the other bits of her like freaking out and clearly being very shaken by the fact that this person is a witch and not liking that Farah wants them to try to take this witch on. I think it's a very strong scene. I think it's a very well acted scene. Um, yeah. I, I also had my notes that, uh, cause it, and it might just be the way that I described it to myself that uh, in the previous scene, Friedkin loses it. And then here Tina loses it. I just thought they're, that felt like a parallel, not necessarily a strong one, and maybe not even an intentional one. But uh, we have. I feel like that happens so regularly in this series, though, that we have characters as completely well, loser. They, they, that is true. Because we had Dirk losing it several episodes in a row as well, almost. Yeah, yeah. I, I quite like um, Farah's sort of um, logical sort of point of view that we need to stop uh, Susie from doing any more damage. And I love um, uh, Tina's reaction of. You're crazy. <laughs> just, yes. just flat out rejecting that. So so this is, I think, the only time that Bart and Panto get mentioned in the episode, and that's almost they've as a escaped, that yeah. they've, they've escaped. And that that just felt like a... They're, they're fun characters. I want to see more Bart and Panto. And for them to get barely a mention in that regard. And the last time we saw them, they were still in the cells with Bart pretty much saying, yeah, well, I'll, you know, let's stick around from memory i can't even remember the last time we saw i wanted to escape and i think it was uh un- it was open-ended as whether he convinced her to help him escape to get back to windermore for the big mm. happy ending right yep. and um this here we find out or just just that they've escaped and uh it feels to me again a victim of the fact that bart goes from being a main character from the first season to almost being a 
tertiary character in this yeah, year. Yeah, she is. There's and no I, think, I, think, I think that's one of the, being one of the strongest and most interesting characters, I think that's one of the things where the season really suffers without her sometimes. But uh, when she's on with Panto, Panto is a great person to pair her with, to be honest. Uh, but anyway, we'll yeah. get to that next time. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I, I I actually genuinely think that you you need to be careful about overusing Bart because like there's only yeah. so much fish out of water. Her trying to not murder people that I think I'm I'm willing to sit through. But but at the same time, you don't. I almost feel like they go too far the other way, having her sit in the jail cell and do nothing all season. I mean, they have some interesting conversations with her and Panto, but we'll talk about this when we get to the end of the season. She shouldn't feel like someone who you you sit you can look back at the whole season and. She got knocked out by Susie and then meant spent most of the rest of the season in a police cell. Anyway, we're sort of this has almost nothing to do with the episode. <laughs> so, so they go to Bob. They go to Bob. Yeah, Bob. Th- what did you think about this scene? This genuinely quite genuinely quite creepy scene, especially with the video footage that Susie has left to basically keep Bob catatonic. And I have to say again, I think we've we've processed before the actor playing uh John Stewart, the actor playing Bob does a really good job of playing zombie Bob, who is genuinely quite terrifying. Yeah, I like this yep. scene. I like it. Um, I And the appearance of the mage as well, the sort of how they have the mage and Susie with their sort of the footage artifacting. Oh, yeah, the, the, the glitch footage of those on the TV is fantastic. I would love to have, you know, get to get that original footage yeah, as a special feature on a something. I'm just like, that's... I, I like glitch art. So I, that appealed mm-hmm. to me a lot. It reminded me a lot of, do you remember in the end, final episode of the first season, there's like an ad on TV that buys watching that has yes. uh, the perfume ad that's like everything is connected, repeated throughout it, and there's all the weird slogans. It reminded me a bit of that. It's just Susie talking just about herself and how great she is and how, you know, Bob is basically a slave. <laughs> it just reminded right. me of that. And I do like a, the mage and uh, the mage pops up and then... Uh, uh, Tina, uh, Tina is like, can he hear? Can he hear us? And I think Far is really good for these these scenes in in, in the Borton's house uh, because uh, there's a bit where she and Sue figures out this must be the mage, and you're the one who gave the one to Susie. And the mage sort of almost kind of he's trying to like uh, not well, he's trying to like make fun basically, but he always also kind of admits that ah oh, you're on the ball today basically. It's the gist of what the mage says. I think he puts it more in a more eloquent way than I did. Yeah, I mean, no, they're they're trying to write Farah as being like the smart, competent one in these scenes. Um, I I really like this scene in general. I don't really like the inconsistency with the magic where shooting the TV makes Bob calm down because he was not under an active TV spell while he was in the yard and he still attacked them. The mechanics of the spells just felt like minorly inconsistent. I mean, it, it led to a good scene where Bob... Is like it led to the next scene where Bob uh, is the doing tequila the talk thing. thing. Yeah, the tequila talk thing, and and that scene was really good. Um, the fight scene was actually really good as well. Um, and it is kind of uh, you know, the the moment where Farah hits the ground with the gun and like the, the way she's saying, "I don't want to have to kill you, Bob." Like I think all of that lines up well, and I I like that they don't that they sh- like shoot the TV and that it doesn't work and that it like or that it stops working and that he drops. Tina, like I like that. I like that. That's how it works. I just, it, it, it feels. In, I wish that the magic spell was always a, you know, there needs to be a continuous source of magic to get him to do the thing instead of like yeah. it feels like you know in the earlier bits of magic they can just give him an order and it'll be indefinite. 
yeah it, it so so you're saying it, it works well in the context of this scene but not in the context of of the whole series yes the, the whole season the, the scene yeah. where uh is it the one where bob occur, nearly kills dirk and sashes him in the dog house yeah because susie hypnotizes him in uh fans of wet circles at the very end of that which is the garrett learner uh, Russell Friend one, and then the one after they have that fight too. So it's different writers. That's the problem. That's why it's pro- probably why it's inconsistent, because uh, someone didn't do a good job yeah. as a showrunner. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not the only thing you did wrong. But yeah. okay, so go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> what were you going to say? Uh, no, no. I, I, I was just thinking to myself, and I realised it didn't even make sense. I, I was just thinking that with, <laughs> I have a lot of that. <laughs> with, with with the first version, uh, uh, Susie was still in our world. She wasn't in a completely different reality so but then i was like but this time the mage is in our world so it's not like there isn't a magical presence in our world to keep the magic alive that right. that, that that the tv replaces as you know functionally uh, the so, mage is sort yeah. of just taken over and they even have that with the glitch of them being sort of almost the same person telling Bob the same things. Just, just kill him, Bob. <laughs> just kill them both. Yeah. Kill both of them. It has to be absolutely clear. Not just one of them, both of them. Um, and I also, I also love the image of Bob with the the uh, picture frame smashed on him, just on top of him, and just after the fight, just sort of sitting down, looking completely exhausted and catatonic again. <laughs> yeah. The secure talk scene, I really agree. That's a very tense scene. And also, I really like how that's when Tina has finally gained enough confidence and starts uh, using, you know, her expertise and her history with Bob as well that Farrah doesn't have, that she mm. sort of leans into that to get the answers out of him. And I lo- another thing of the acting of Bob, you can see how much physical pain it is for him to say the word Corey as well. And yeah. you see, like, you almost feel like the, there's a sort of good representation of the magic that Susie has put um, Bob under and almost like that's how much pain she has put Bob through and how almost as it says him being afraid to speak out as well not just the magic that there's the yeah who has that control even when she's not there I, I think it's a case where Bob's control uh, has been taken from him and replaced by the control of the magic and then once the TV is shot putting that aside uh, the the external control of Bob has been taken away but his own control hasn't come back so he's a he's a nothing at that point it's mm. his own control is returning very very slowly uh, and i think that makes sense just that with no external control his own control is eventually going to naturally return he's he's in his own body uh, but it's he's been banished within his own body for so long that yeah all he's got is autonomous functions that yeah you know, he he can barely physically grunt yeah and yeah it's 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 uh, a dark scene you described it earlier this sequence is dark and i think that's some of the darkest of it that is lacking in control it's there's zero control it's not often seen i think there's there's usually the you're in control of yourself that's that's normal or somebody is in control of you but to have this lack of any control of a character and then to be central to the scene is unusual and interesting I was going to say the makeup department did a really good job with like the blood in his eyes and like the close-up shots where it's just his face and the paintings as well look really painful when they yeah when they were pulling the pins out I thought I like had kind of a small laugh because they're very careful when they show the pins being pulled off not to flip the pin to camera because there's no pin on the other side of those pins yeah 
And so like when they take them off, there's like, I'm like watching and I'm like, yep, never saw the other side of that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, I just wanted to really credit them because I was looking at like his eyes and I don't, I don't know if maybe it was done in post, but like there's some blood in his eyes that looks really good. Um, it looks painful, but yeah, it really works for this scene and getting you to sympathize with what Bob is, is, has been through. And we want them to, to take down uh, the mage. I was wondering, by the way, do you think the mage expected uh, not just, um, or maybe he had a contingency plan, not just for Farentine to survive, but also for um, Bob to rack out his location in the quarry? Because when they arrive later on, he doesn't seem surprised at all to see him in fact it's almost like he's waiting for them uh, although it could or it could just be the alternative interpretation is that he sees them coming and is just instantly able to teleport there but his mannerisms like, it's almost like he's been expecting them to come i thought that was an interesting thing that i not picked up the first time i, I watched this i didn't it didn't feel to me like he was expecting it it more was like a pleasant surprise uh, okay that's how i read it yeah, because that sort of opened up the uh, the uh, interpretation of that he uh, either lifted his uh, control over Bob or got him, made him literally say it when they asked, which uh, adds a different spin on that scene, which I don't think was intended. Uh, it's 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 a sort of odd reading, and it doesn't really. I don't think he would want to be found. There's no real motivation for him to be, unless he just wants to, you know, get rid of and deal with Farentina. And by his reaction and what we see found out later on when. He, uh, he doesn't quite finish them off straight away, so uh, it doesn't feel the matter that, oh, I, I want them to come to me so I can get rid of them and tear up the loose ends. It's just, uh, these are my pets now, and I'm going to toy with them. Can we talk about the, the the Susie Borden's first scene and then do all of Dirk and... Uh, yeah, because that's Austin's. first scene with Susie, so it doesn't really uh, have a huge significance. The, there are a few little details in it that are quite nice. So she goes to... Uh, Wacky's pool <laughs> with all her what's it the Santi Santiga the weird clock thing people yeah, yeah, yeah. make the weird noises and the sound design is still quite good on those especially when they when Susie starts to take over and um, they they get quite scared Susie gets um, uh, shocked I think by the pool uh, just like Amanda was initially but then she sort of thinks oh it tingles and, and the, we see like blood starting to pop. We see we saw there was a little bit of blood before. I think it sort of just looked more like makeup, and now it starts really kind of. There's almost like a deluge of blood around her eyes. It starts to drip over during this scene, uh, which really makes her look quite uh, even more demented than. Uh, well, I think the implication is the pool did that. Like she she doesn't she it's has pool not... resisting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not just what happened with Amanda because Amanda it was sort of a. Uh, it was more so over the parabulitis, where Susie doesn't have that. But can you remember what the line is? Because she's reading from the book, and she's like, once I do something with this pool, the whole everything will be mine, or something like that. And he's like, so how does it work? Yeah. I don't really, I didn't, I, I don't remember what that line was, especially. Was it something to do with uh, the portal? Because I know what she does with it later. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe that maybe that justifies this scene more. I hate this scene. 
Um, I, it looks cool. Don't get me wrong. It looks cool. I love how scary she looks. She sticks her wand in the thing and darkness goes everywhere and it has zero effect on the rest of the world. We've seen the rest yeah. of the world. <laughs> that is a good thing about it. That's why you, yeah. I didn't mention it in the synopsis at all. It's literally just Susie to sit, does that and then sits in there for the rest of the episode while the plot goes on around her and then she shows up dramatically at the end. It's right. Like, it, they couldn't think of anything interesting to do with Susie that would have took screen time away from the other stuff they wanted to do. So they just left her there. Just, <sighs> just she just sit there and have a chat with all those weird Santi Santigam uh, things that can't really speak any English. They're scared shitless. Yeah, it's it's just such a weird like. By the way, this is where Susie is. She's doing this thing because reasons. Uh, so it's okay that she's suddenly just with everyone else at the end of the episode because because we said she was there, right? And so it makes sense that she's still there, right? I I don't know. It, it feels it feels clunky. It it, it doesn't. It doesn't do anything else in the world. She already killed Wakti, who's the only other magical entity that could stand up against her. So, like, that, to me, was, like, her cementing her place in the world. And so, like, this feels like a weird other little task that is never fully explained, nor... It doesn't have any weight. It's just, like, it's just like uh, yeah, this is a thing that you probably need to do, right? It's like um, the. It's a bit like I guess the uh, freaking uh, Ken stuff, which is set up for the um, Mona Wilder confrontation. I think in the next episode, where and this is a set up for. The, yeah, maybe this again is, the Black Queen attack with the knights, which happens. Right, the maybe this this is probably set up for that, but I feel like they needed to set it up better. <laughs> they need to explain to the audience why why she is doing this, why she cares, because it's it's a throwaway line. That like to me was like I, I heard it as like I will rule the kingdom with like as long as I can master this pool. And then like the idea of using the wand instead of her hand to me, to me that was like her cheating. Like she couldn't use her hand, and so she's sticking the wand in, and that's like a worse thing or something. But like none of it. It's just it's just a visual like explanation, but it's not. It's never like explicitly explained in the text as to what she's doing or how doing it one way or the other is different. It's just like, it's cool that blood's coming out of her face. That's not going to be in the next scene. All that blood's going to be cleaned up. Yeah, so, well, to be whatever. fair, Susie does have some standards, even though she walked uh, from literally from the hospital, uh, the dumpster outside the hospital, all the way to Wendemore with glass in her face and just in her sweater. <laughs> once, yeah. when, once she made the effort to become a uh, scary queen, Visually, you know, she's going to keep that up. I think so. So cleaning herself up, uh, I didn't have a problem with. But yeah, yeah. I, I agree that it just did feel like uh, we need to show her doing something to, you know, to be seen to be doing something. But yeah, it doesn't have an effect. So can we get to the fun part of, the, yeah. of this <laughs> end of it, which <laughs> is, I guess, it starts with um, uh, the beast uh, pursuing Dirk, and he runs into the truck which Hobbs saw uh, a few episodes ago. Uh, you saw the mage driving it into the barn, and then here it's reemerged here. So I like I like that that was a nice little sort of um, consistency there, I guess, uh, of that reappearing again for Dirk to utilize later during the um, fight slash escape from uh, the Dingdemore village. Uh, and uh, so the ch the chase the chasing with the with the beast. I like how it's this sort of um, the beast has sort of become this other kind of. Um, obstacle that Dirk has to deal with <laughs> that, that is uh previously he had given up and now it's like oh no I uh, now I've created this problem myself because she's become really attached to me in that short time that I knew 
Can you, can someone explain to me why he's covered in leaves at the start of this episode? Yeah, he he runs out from the previous episode, doesn't he? After he figures out, oh, I know where the boy is, and he has to escape from the beast. And then he 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 goes to the forest. It's clearly night when he escapes. He fall. He clearly gets tired and falls asleep on a bunch of leaves. Somehow the leaves have fallen over him. I guess just because it's Wendemore and the leaves fall out in the trees. Really I thought maybe he was using them as like camouflage, but I yeah. didn't remember that it was nighttime when he ran away. And so like that. He just like woke up in leaves, and I was like, "Was he kidnapped? Did someone put the leaves on him?" Like I just and again, of course, it, was like, it could be that uh, the beast put the leaves on him. <laughs> oh, that's that's an interesting thought as well. Although I think yeah. she would probably have released him if that was the case. That's true. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those ones where there's a few all plausible explanations I can think of, but there's nothing in the text that makes it clear what it actually was intended. Yeah, and then we um, we get to Dirk sort of essentially sneaking into the village, and I've written in the notes that he sneaks around like Solid Snake a bit because he, there's a bit some bits where he's hiding on top of a roof where literally everybody should be able to see him, but nobody seems to notice and little things like that. And there's some nice little details that I think I want to get into a bit more in, in the references. But uh, do you want to talk more about uh, Dirk and the escape plan, or should we go to uh, Amanda and Todd in the cells? Let's go to the cells because I think that happens a little bit before the escape. Yeah, we get some really nice little character stuff actually because this is the first sort of heart to heart that both of them have had since uh, falling out. I think um, uh, this is where Amanda finally learns that Todd has a uh, parubulitis. Uh, what do you guys think of Amanda's reaction? Because she just kind of, if I remember correctly, does she? She's like, "Oh, serious? Are you for real this time?" <laughs> I think it's what she says. I don't think she says this time. I, I, I think she does say, are you for real? But I think uh, the implication, I, that was sort of the implication that, you know, because Todd lied about it for so long and now he's got it. So there's a sort of irony that I think is not lost on Amanda. Mm. I like it. I like this scene. I, I think this entire sequence is really good. I like that Amanda's still pissed. I like that, like, their, their reconciliation feels more earned through this scene because, like, she admits that she wants to have her brother back and that she used to think he was her hero, but he has been so shitty to her um, that like, you know, it's, it's not something that's going to get fixed overnight. Uh, so like everything about that part of the scene is really good. Um, I like I, that it shows Amanda's desire to fix things. We saw so much of that from Todd, but I, I yeah. like that, that line at the end where she's like, how do I get my brother back? And Todd's like, I don't know, but look, I'm trying. And I'm doing right. like that. And try harder. And then the bit where they, the where they slap each other, that's just adorable. Where they're trying to, and they're yeah, sort of it, thinking back to that is, time in Orlando. It is adorable, but I feel like it overstays. I don't know. To, to me, it like starts out being really funny, and then it's kind of like, oh, by the way, you're going to die in an hour. Like it, I, it felt a little awkward at the end of it, it to me, but I still liked the beginning of it where they're just slapping each other and, and remembering good times. Um, it's a good feels kind of scene. It's the sort of thing that I feel like makes sense for them at that stage, to be honest. It, I, I actually felt with that because it starts off with uh, with Amanda hitting Todd, wanting to try and provoke him to hit her back to try and trigger a, her perubulitis attack. Uh, and that act, start of that scene actually felt a bit dark. Like she's trying to get him to beat her up and his first instinctive uh, response uh uh, self-defense slap back uh, which is after his she's already hit him uh, three or four times at that point that actually felt like oh this could be getting into a domestic violence type scene that felt bad and then the 
hey, remember that time that we used to you know, play slap each other as kids in the car? That oh, that was such a long trip, and, and that that helps diffuse that, that scene quite. Yeah, a lot, it, it 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 diffused the situation from being a actual violent situation to a reminding themselves as much as reminding us that hey we're siblings we have a history we grew up together we play fight we have fun and and that what brought the levity back into the scene and made it quite a as you say a fun scene but it was to me watching it it felt like it was in danger of becoming a really you know dark domestic violence scene up to that point i i don't know i feel like when he hits her it, it's like it it's it has that oh no uh, like moment for like half a second, and then she's like, "Ugh, nothing." And I think that's where the diffusal yeah. happens. I think like that line is where the diffusal happens, where she's like, "Finally, you hit me. Ugh, didn't work. All right, we're doing this again." Um, like, well, this was also was she had the same problem with Vogel early in the season, trying to force her vision where yeah. he couldn't because she got so used to that. So <laughs> yeah, it's no wonder the same thing happens with Todd and. I, I, we glossed over the scene. I don't think we need to dwell on it too much. Where Freya and Weiger come in, and basically Amanda says exactly the same thing she said in the previous episode, and Freya still doesn't believe. And the base. I think the only reason that scene is so Freya can say to sentence them to death within earshot of Dirk, really, which sort of makes sense. They have to sort of have. Well, I think it exists for uh, like one other reason. I think it exists to set up a redemption arc for Weigar with Silas. Um, yeah. Because Weigar uh, hears everything they're saying, and she still tells him to sentence them to death. And then he, uh, Silas asks what they said, and she won't tell him. And Weigar is sort of like at this conflicted point where it's like, oh, maybe I was wrong. Maybe Dirk Gently is real. You know, what's like, you know, I, I betrayed Silas in, in trying to keep to my house. And so, like, you kind of see this moment with, with Weigar where, like, he's feeling guilt about seeing that maybe he kind of, you know, bet on the wrong horse with uh, Freya. Uh, before he gets to the Rowdy Three, I want to talk about him and the Executioner, because I think that seems funny. It is, yeah. Yes. Um, well, I mean, he sneaks in, he jumps into the back of this Executioner's cart, um, they get into town, and then he gets out of the cart, and there's this, like, the Executioner's like, who's back there? And, like, he does this sort of, like, walks behind a you know, small panel and does a quick costume change in like the least <laughs> believable way possible, but it's very funny. And then he comes back and does like three different accents on his way coming back. He's like, I'm a very normal, you know, uh, person from this land, definitely not a foreigner. And he's like, ah, well, help us out here. Um, and he speaks in Spanish briefly. Uh, and not very well. <laughs> yeah, very poorly. And he, yeah, it's to me, it's just like it. It's very weird, but it's like just slapstick funny enough. And then the executioner obviously like delivers the information to Dirk. That they're going to kill the prisoners. But I don't know. I, I thought it, it was a funny way of explaining another costume change. It was a funny way of getting Dirk into sort of uh, being able to blend in uh, in a way that like in his normal clothes, he wouldn't have been able to. Yeah. I thought it was funny. I thought it was I'm worth bringing great up. Great acting from Sam Barnett in that scene. And I... Uh... I, as someone who did, went to secondary school and only got a D in a Spanish GCSE, uh, I can relate to Dirk being really bad at Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he doesn't, I don't. I, I like how he's just sort of flicking between the accents, so hoping that one of them will appease the executioner and help him blend in. He just <laughs> like throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. <laughs> and then eventually he gives up and just does his normal voice. So. <laughs> yeah, 
it, it was it was fun. It's it's one of those scenes that, when analysing it, feels like yeah, that that existed for exposition, but it was fun enough to watch that it didn't interrupt, you know, that analysis at at uh, at the time of watching. Yeah. So we get the scene where Dirk uh, runs into Martin while he's running away from the beast. Uh, Martin and the rest are Andy Frickos, and uh, I think it's Cross who says something like uh, to Dirk like a. Uh, I don't, I was like, hey, British guy, you're, you're going to hate your situation, is on the line, <laughs> which I really love, just the phrasing of that. Dirk sort of wants to talk to them. But there's a sort of weird thing where everybody talks over each other. Dirk gets a bit overwhelmed and punches Martin in the face, and he's almost shocked at his own behavior. He ref- Almost like we see Dirk get back into this sort of confident mode, and now he almost has a sort of moment where he steps back and says... Look, I have become a rude, violent, young or youngish man. Yeah, it's a great little, little little scene, and I especially really like Martin in this scene. Sort of uh, how he kind of initially seems like, oh, he's just brushed off the punch because it didn't hurt him. But he does get his own back at Dirk, and then he, immediately after punching Dirk back, he says, "Like, let's listen to this guy. He's in charge now." Yeah, <laughs> which is great. It feels very kind of um. Like uh, even though the stakes, Dirk mentions that the stakes are quite high, and there's a nice little moment where Martin sort of realizes. I think it's made clear that um, if he just him and the Randys just rush in, then it's quite likely that uh, Amanda will get slaughtered along with Todd. Although he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really care about Todd that much at this point. But um, Amanda, it says, it may as well save both of them, I guess. And uh, Dirk wants to save Todd, so he kind of has to go along with it. I like that there's that little moment where they're about to, they're just about to go off and do it without Dirk, and then he stops and sort of, they're, they're still, he doesn't sort of betray what he's really feeling, but you can tell that that's playing on his mind. So I, I like that as a sort of subtle moment. Uh, what do you, any, do you guys have any more thoughts on, on that scene in, in the forest? I felt like the other the other two of the Rowdy Three that weren't Vogel or Martin are, are still kind of sold short in this scene. Um, they, 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 I like the overall scene. I like the dynamic where the beast is protecting Dirk and and like and Dirk almost sort of protects the beast as well at one point. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but that like there's kind of a cool a fun moment where we're like I think that's the beginning of Dirk seeing value in the beast as being able to protect him from like these other threats. So I think that's kind of a fun sort of subtext of that moment. Um, and also, she just wants to help as well. And yeah. There's this always kind of innocence that she, he stops seeing her as an annoyance and that this is someone who can just help me, another person, when I need all the people and help I can get. And uh, so shall we go on to the, the rescue attempt? We have yeah, yeah, yeah. initially the scene where Amanda and Todd are walked out to Mr. Sandman, but it's not the original version of Mr. Sandman. It's the depre- really depressing cover <laughs> version of it, a panel cover. And um, they walked out on the big dunces cat. So this is almost kind of a blending of this is seen is utterly ridiculous, but the stakes are still quite high. And Amanda gives like a last final goodbye, I think, to Todd, thinking that they're not going to get out of it because they don't know that Dirk's going to save them. I think she says I'm scared at some point as well. That's I don't it, yes. Exactly. I'm scared. Yeah, yeah like she that. mentions that she's scared. She doesn't want to die, basically. And Todd's just yeah. like, me, me neither. And so they, they can't really they comfort each other because they haven't, I think they haven't really had enough time together. They've spent a little bit of time. But they're not fully kind of over, maybe. Yeah. And then so they're saved, thankfully. Uh, Dirk and the and Co. Uh, no, Dirk's already there. Sorry. Uh, the Rowdy Free come in on the truck, which is the distraction, and we get the lovely uh, Freya. I think is given before they, she gives a speech, uh, basically denouncing magic, saying that uh, everything that went wrong is all Todd and Amanda's fault. So we're going to kill them, and it'll make everything better, basically. And it reminds me a lot of the TV show Merlin. Anthony Head's character Ufa Pendragon gives 
basically basically that speech every other episode <laughs> before he tries to execute a magic use anyway but that's a bbc melon but. and um then we get the big fight scene and dirk reveals himself as well in a very cool fashion and i like how uh Freya gives this big comedic yelp, like uh, we've come finally confronted by Dirk Gently, who she was convinced was not real <laughs> up until that point. And it's like this horrifying moment for her, and I think she just gets knocked out and taken out of the scene almost instantly. So the rest of it is, it becomes kind of Dirk versus Silas, who doesn't realize that he's Dirk until like halfway um, near the end of the fight. And we have the Ready Free fighting Wygar. And both of those, are, I think, are pretty fun fights. Yeah, um, just to pull apart a little bit of what you said. One, what happened to the executioner? Uh, two, Dirk probably just told him to take a day off and sell his guys. Yeah, I, I <laughs> guess. Like good friends. Uh, and then the other thing was, like, why does Freya know who Dirk is? <laughs> like, like, she does give this big yelp. I thought she gave a yelp to the beast. Oh, that was it. Yeah, I may be misremembering the order of events. Yeah, I think I think the beast comes up after D Dirk stops her from pulling the lever, which is like a very last minute thought, but it's all fine. It, it's it's very you know uh, Looney Tunes. I don't think she knows it. I think it's a, it's a sort of nice little irony that she's prevented and stopped yeah. it and undone by the one person she was committed. And I really I think it's really refreshing as well to have Dirk's confidence back, especially the fight he has with Silas, where he's like, um, "Oh look, I got him in the bum," and he's like, uh, sort of, <laughs> like trying to tell like told Amanda, like trying to show off a bit about like how he's never used this as a sword before, but he's you know getting the upper hand on Silas. <laughs> I do love that, like, the show has told us earlier that Silas is terrible with these scissor swords, and so yeah. having both of them poorly fight each other is definitely really funny. If you listen, there's actually a lot of, like, background ADR of Todd and Amanda saying Dirk. Like, they use his name actually, like, three or four times during that fight in the background Text. Why do they not jump in to help? It does feel a little bit odd because they're free at that point. <laughs> yeah, but they, they, they don't have scissor swords and, and Silas and Dirk both do it. At that point, I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to get involved with the two guys that have got big pointy sharp weapons. Pick up like, a rock or something. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Rowdy 3 have no such problem with that. Um, yeah. The Rowdy 3 fight is they're, actually... They're, they're, the, they're the rowdy. So, Todd and Amanda uh, have self-preservation instincts. One of my favorite parts of the Rowdy fight choreography is they literally just throw Vogel at him. <laughs> a yeah, I like how they got the Kellum Knight things. They're using it as like boxing gloves, and they give yeah. lines like, uh, "I haven't a clue what's going on here, but I'm just gonna yeah. wreck it up." I, basically, I love that line. That <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, and um, uh, I didn't realize actually the first time I watched this until slightly later that they actually kidnapped Silas because it happens quite quickly that Dirk sort of I think gets yeah. the upper hand and knocks him out. Not knocks him out and onto his back. And, does, and it's sorry, not, yes, yes. Yeah, they like they they like do a double pinch. It's not clear that, he, that where he falls back onto is the back of the truck. Yeah. As just I the, thought he just uh, fell on the stage at first and they just went yeah, off. Yeah, same. Didn't have any motivation. It's almost sort of, well, you know, let's just take him along with this. Of course, because there's, there's a bit where I think um, he is about to say, oh, no, you're Dirk. You know, why am I trying to kill you? And then that's when Todd knocks him out, mm. of course. And then you can tell Dirk is where you think, oh, well, maybe let's bring him on. He didn't seem like that bad a guy. <laughs> and he wasn't really that much of a threat to them because Dirk had the upper hand easily. This is a sort of. So, anything more to say about that fight? I think that's one of the better, the definitely the lightest scene in the whole episode, and uh, more, definitely a big antidote to all the stuff, especially with um, 
even though I complained about the tone there, it's a nice antidote that really dark, those really dark scenes with Bob and Tina and Farrah. I like the dark scenes with Bob and Tina and Farrah. I do. Though, well. like, <laughs> I, think the, I think it's nice to have a bit of a contrast as well, just after sure. with this uh, sure. escape scene. I can see that. Then we get the um, scene where basically Silas wakes up, we see it from his point of view, and uh, Dirk basically gives the big explanation, which reminded me a lot of the one he gave to Patrick Spring in uh, Weaponized Soul, when he's sort of explaining that he knows the cases. How do you get everything right? And they sort of present a bit of a flashback sort of in the middle of his speech as well. It's it's a little more funny this time, actually, because... um, we have all these characters like Amanda doesn't realize there's a case going on, and so that has to be explained. The Radio Free are not following anything that Dirk's saying. Bibbit is just like, ah, oh, Bibbit speaking. Let's listen to Bibbit speak. It's so fun. <laughs> I like Bibbit, is what she just says in the middle of it. And uh, and just like, I think Man has a line that says, like, just what I expected from you, Dirk. Weird, nerdy bullshit. <laughs> yes. uh, do you guys have any thoughts on this scene and the explanation that Dirk gives? I know I kind of glossed over it in this synopsis. But... Yeah, I. It... It doesn't, I don't know, on second viewing, it doesn't give me as much joy as like the first season's explanation scene, I think. Yeah. I don't know, maybe it's because the people who are, maybe it's because it's like awkwardly, uh, the way it's like including Amanda in like, wait, is there another case? It's like, yes, by the way, we're in another case. Um, the, there's just a lot of like really fast hand wavy, like let's get everyone caught up. Uh, it like obviously these explanation scenes always are going to feel contrived, but this one feels especially contrived. I don't love it. <laughs> like is the bottom line. I don't. I don't love his explanation sequence, and maybe I also don't love it because not only is it the second time I'm hearing it, but also like the intro to this episode already showed me most of this. Um, the only real new piece of information is like Project Moloch and maybe the sixty-seven being linked if that wasn't obvious already like it, it's just it's just respelling out stuff in a more explicit way there was a scene i really liked in this a moment i really liked this with silas actually interesting i, I loved dirk's line where he's like any boyfriend of pantos is someone i might meet in an alternate dimension yeah <laughs> <laughs> need to find an excuse to use that one um uh, in real life um and uh, there's a moment where dirk reveals that the bendable was made by uh, the boy when the boy fell into the coma, uh, and so that as I you know, the fell three generations ago sort of thing that was set up quite subtly quite earlier, which I quite like. And uh, Silas says something. He's a similar reaction to initially. So it sounds a bit like the mage's reaction when he found out that he saw the drawings. It's like he says something like, um, "Oh, uh, so you know, we're just figments in a boy's imagination. We're not real. And then Dirk sort of reassures him that, no, no, that was like your big bang. So you are real. You can sort of exist independently of that, but this world is going to get a crap unless the boy comes back, basically. And I, I, I quite like that as a sort of contrast to the moment with the mage, where instead of giving into despair, Silas is sort of given, an existential despair, Silas is sort of given a hope by Dirk, and they have a different kind of philosophy and reaction to that. Yeah, I get that. I I still feel like their fundamental essence is determined by the boy in a way that is a little bit disconcerting and weird. <laughs> like the yeah, personalities kind of. of of all of like the original, you know, generation presumably um was everything that the boy set up. Um and like even the events of the battles, even like the events of the world were all set up to be what the boy had planned. It's just the boy needed to be there and he wasn't. 
what I found awkward with it was the very ending just before uh, Susie shows up, uh, who we talked about, about earlier, that she shows up. Uh, where they all, where he gets told to say everything's connected. Where, yeah, and then they, they, yeah, Todd says everything is connected and they all kind of have that laugh of like, ha ha ha, yes, that's our catchphrase of this show. And then this Susie's was the ending show. of a sitcom. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's just... It wouldn't surprise me if Russell Friend and Garrett Lerner are sitcom writers. <laughs> the handing over of the line to Todd, uh, I liked. I thought that was well done. It was just well, he the, does the did it, does the did it thing as well. And Dirk, yeah, it Dirk's been trying to make that awkwardly be a thing all season. I, that was okay. Well, half of the season. Uh, this, uh, yeah. this is a bit better because it sort of shows, because before he did it as a sort of nervous kind of thing where he was trying to... Show that he was on yeah. top of things really clearly, wasn't it? And this time he has actually done it. So there's if, a bit of if I say it enough, it will be true. Um, yes. <laughs> now, now it's actually you know, he, he has a it's has more genuine. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Even if it, I do find it personally a little bit cringy. <laughs> That's okay. It's there. There's also a little oddity in that just before Susie shows up, they are kind of presenting it as yes, the case is solved, and we've got to ensure there's a couple of minor things that we need to do, and as viewers, we know there's two more episodes left in the season. It's, you know, this is quite early to be saying solved it and wrapped up. Uh, and then Susie shows up to remind us, look, this is a significant thing left to do. And we get the final uh, scene with the mage and uh, Tina and Farah, uh, which we talked mm. about earlier. Uh, that that shows up also here at the end. So we're, we're reminded that there's still a significant threat in the real world and a significant threat in Wendemore to go. So... I actually thought this was the second to last episode when I got to the end of it. I had to look at the episode list because I was like, oh, is there just one episode left? And then I saw, oh, no, there's two. There's two episodes left. Because um, when this when the mystery is solved, it feels like the mystery yeah. should get solved. That and feels like an episode sort of... nine thing. Yeah, because that was what happened. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. the penultimate that, episode. Yeah, they, it feels like there should be the one episode of and now we wrap up everything and have our... Somewhat happy ending. In some ways, I feel like the last two episodes are basically one episode greedy stretch now, <laughs> in my mm-hmm. opinion. Uh, but just a sort of common complaint with the season, with the two, with the two extra episodes that they sort of yeah. space things out a bit more in terms of the, way, the, the pacing. Uh, shall I go into notes and references now? Yeah, yeah. please, please. I'm pretty yeah. So I talked earlier about um, Ken asking if you, 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 you thought it was bullshit, Jesse, but you know, about Ken <laughs> asking Priest if. Uh, you know, specifically if there was any sign of Farrah after uh, she beat the crap out of him uh, the last time they saw each other, or the only time they actually ran into each other in the whole series. Uh, Ken explains to Freakin that the original Black Green from the 1960s never followed up on the Cardenas case after all the CIA's top secret programs were cancelled once the funding was pulled for Project Paperclip, which was a real-life post-World War II program from the US government to recruit German scientists, engineers, and technicians many of whom were former Nazis, in order to harness their expertise in technology. Most famously, the most famous example of this was Werner von Braun and his work on the V2 rocket during the space race. So I like that there's a little sort of, um, they're sort of tying in with that, that once, though the Project Paperclip was being cancelled, that that had a knock-on effect on Blackwing, of the, the original Blackwing of the 60s. Originally, I sort of got confused there and thought that Project Paperclip was the original name for Blackwing, but that was me. Yeah, yeah, it. that's that actually was my assumption too, that it was just an earlier version of Blackwing. I didn't realize it was real world. That's neat. Yeah. Uh, when the executioner first meets Dirk in disguise and Dirk puts on a very bad Irish accent, the executioner calls Dirk a hoopy fruit. I initially misheard this line as hoopy fruit. 
I thought the closed captioning said Hoopy Fruit, or at least it said one of those two. It said Hoopy Fruit. I looked at it the, the yesterday. When I was I'll have to pull up the, the closed captioning on uh, Hulu then, because, yeah, I definitely did catch that reference. Maybe a different person it. captioned the, the Hulu one. It, it felt to me like um you were meant to sort of, if you were to just listening to it, that was what yeah. you were It's a Hitchhiker's reference for sure. Definitely, which is, of course, the... the mm. A really guy's really cool and has everything together is a hoopy food and also knows where his tower is of course uh despite hitchhiking through europe and even spending time as in spain as revealed in the salmon no doubt comic dirk's knowledge of spanish lingo is abysmal he says to the executioner i eat the window you are my mother <laughs> <laughs> one of the dangdemore citizens has a giant pet tortoise following him around in the background of this same scene as well, which I absolutely love. There's the scene is just as Dirk and the executioner grabbing half of the scissors that's going to be used to kill Dirk's friends. <laughs> well, he also learns that during this scene that there's going to be an execution and sort of the yeah, the hints it's going to be two brothers. So he's all but given the sort of pieces to cl- the clues to piece that together. After swinging a punch at Martin, Dirk remarks, "I have never hit anyone before." And whilst this is, I think this is absolutely true of uh, this version of Dirk, although there is the scene with Dirk when he's first introduced with Todd where he gets into a sort of karate, silly karate fight with Topper, he never lands a punch on Todd. So it does it feels it's definitely consistent that he's yeah he's gone angry, he's swung his fist, but he's never actually, you know, hurt anyone or made contact with anyone's fist before, face before. And this is it's true for this version of Dirk, but the version played by Stephen Mangan, the BBC four T V show, uh in there in one of the episodes uh in the uh, the full season they did, I think it's I want to invade Switzerland. Dirk mistakenly punched Richard McDuff in the face in the dark, believing him to be a thief that they'd set a trap for because Dirk went out to get pizza in that episode and came back. And <laughs> yeah, um, so so that's so that's kind of a nice little uh thing with different versions of Dirk. But it's that's true for this version, Dirk, to say, but it's not necessarily true for the other versions. When Amanda and Todd are marched out for their public execution, Mr. Sandman plays on the soundtrack, but unlike Susie's magic montages from earlier in the season. Instead of playing the Cordettes version, there's the original one, uh, SYML's incredibly depressing piano cover is used. I, I like that as a sort of a, again, it, it's sort of, I don't think it's meant to be like uh, meant taken all that seriously. Though. <laughs> um, also during the scene, Amanda and Todd are wearing red dunces caps. This may be a reference to the animated miniseries Over the Garden Wall, where Elijah Wood voiced one of the main characters, Wirt, who also wore a red conical hat throughout the entire series. So that's a cool little thing. And okay. if, you haven't seen, if you haven't seen Over the Garden Wall, it's a cool little uh, surreal thing. And uh, I just replace the older brother, Wirt, and uh, I forget the younger. The younger brother is really adorable, and I forget who plays him. But uh, that's, that's a really fun series, and it's not too long. That came out before this as well, so it's definitely a reference to that. When Dirk unmasks himself as he stops Freya from pulling the execution switch, he tells her, sorry for the inconvenience. This is a clear reference to those terms, <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy novels, where we apologize for the inconvenience was revealed to be God's final message to his creation. <laughs> I really like that, actually. It's, especially because it's repurposed. There's a, oh, sorry to spoil the party. <laughs> it's sort of, I like, I, I like the idea of like Sam's lines being repurposed to be like a badass kind of Dirk moment. <laughs> That's not the only time this happens in this season either. A uh, final one I have hit is when Dirk's telling his uh, story. He, he refers to the predecessor to Project Blackwing as the Men in Black, which is an obvious reference to the hit 1997 Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones film of the same name. So... There you go. Uh, final thoughts, then, to wrap up uh, 
little guy black hair and by the way little guy black hair is um a vogel describes amanda as a as a little guy with black hair which is <laughs> <laughs> great another misgender moment uh <laughs> Which is a surprising amount in this show. Usually there's involving like Bart, usually. <laughs> um, uh, what do you guys think of a little guy black hair then? Overall. Uh, do you like it? Uh, have I convinced you to like it slightly more, Jesse? Oh, I thought you were going to let Nemo go first. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> I, didn't think so. uh, I, I still like the I still like the dark moments. I still like the major character moments. I still think the jokes are good. Um, but uh, no. Uh, it still is, uh, I, I think it's still really clunky, weak writing uh, in terms of a lot of what they're doing. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't I, I, yeah. I, think I, okay. I agree that it's clunky and weak writing, but I don't actually dislike the episode at the end of it. I, I, yeah, pre pretty much I, I agree with Jesse, just not as strongly. I don't feel as strongly about it. But it feels like a messy episode that's... It's it's trying to do so many things and it's not doing any of them well enough. It's not doing anything. I don't see. I don't think it's doing anything too badly. It's just not doing anything well. I can hear Jesse sort of gnashing his teeth and not too badly, <laughs> just thinking Ken and Freakin, Ken and Freakin. Uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously, I have those thoughts, but uh, no. I mean, the the they're they're so minor in the episode. The episode has so much else going yeah. on. Yeah, it's just it's just a lot of hand wavy bullshit. It's a lot of like, and this happened off screen, and this happened off screen, and oh look, it's it's it's, it's more contri It's contrived without feeling like it's contrived because everything is connected. It yeah. feels contrived because they didn't feel like setting things up. I think uh, yeah. for me, this episode, what made this episode better is having a brief scene showing Farrah escaping um, from. Yeah, it, it, if it, it does feel like there could have been a, a number of small scenes to have just. Yeah, cut the things. scene with Susie in the pool, just have uh, the scene with Farrah, maybe near the beginning, or, before we see the or, scene where he reports. Or alternatively, Ken. have the scene where, where with Susie in the pool and then just have a cut shot to like dark clouds vaguely moving overhead and and other characters going huh stuff's happening I, yeah i guess that that, uh, that could feel out of place but at least have Susie's scene have wider impact than just giving her a cool shot and a chance to laugh maniacally yeah, yeah. i agree i would uh, i i think flesh it out or cut it is definitely a thing and like if you can flesh it out before you can flesh it out after but just give the audience a sense of why i feel like like the underlying failure of this episode across the board is like for the parts where it feels weak, there's no real why are they why is this happening this way on either a mechanical level or an like a character motivation level. Okay, well I guess we we've been going on for a long time, so I think we should wrap <laughs> up. So the next episode we'll be covering is episode nine, which is Trouble is Bad. And um <laughs> hopefully maybe that'll be a return to form for Jesse. But um so uh in conclusion, then, uh, you can catch up with us on our website, which is dirtgentlypodcast.wordpress.com. And in fact, we got a message from there. I know. Amazing, right? Uh, I, should, I, feel, I feel the need to, to read out from Frashbark. And this is dated 4th of April, so it's the beginning of the month. So I'm getting, probably getting to this several months after. But um, I, uh, as part of my thing, I did ask him what his real name was, and so I won't reveal that here because that's as part of the um, ridiculous me being intrusive and personal information. And he gave his email back. So, uh, one of the part, one of the, the question I sent him was now choose either die in the vacuum of space or tell me how good you thought my podcast was. 
And <laughs> he replied, someone, possibly me, is selling a bunch of props from the show on eBay. I certainly didn't see my income coming to a complete stop. I'm doing everything I can not to sell the air gun. So I assume this is someone who has uh, picked up some stuff from the uh, auction that was done a while back and is now uh, selling it himself. But um, he also says, P.S. Love the podcast. So, th- so that's nice, uh, even though he's admitting to uh, possibly selling uh, the show's merchandise is extortionate amounts. <laughs> possibly selling stuff at, at anything I can get amounts. Uh, so, yeah, if, I mean, we're... we're I don't know about you guys, but uh, live, living in uh, this uh, lock-in, shut-down, quarantine, whatever we're calling it, uh, isolation, is uh, it's getting weird. Uh, and I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, it's just something we're going to have to learn to live with. So you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Edward J. Hunter. Nemo is at underscore... Uh, at uh, sub no, sub, un- sub underscore ether, E-T-H-R. Yeah, exactly. And Jesse's on there too, at Erebus Wolf, I believe. Yes, and also Jesse has a game called In Search of Dominic Ward. That is, uh, yes, Hush, Hush, In Search of Dominic Ward. It. It's on Steam. You add it. You can wish list it now. Hopefully, we'll have a new trailer up in couple, maybe a month and a half. We'll, we'll see how that's how that's working. It's going to be out by the time this comes out. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Without further ado, thanks for listening. Uh, good night. I'm going to let my family go to bed now. So. <laughs> And myself. I'm, conversely, I'm going to finish waking up. Okay. <laughs> All right. Welcome to here. I'm just going to go about my day. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you later. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.